and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. It is not often anymore on the show that we get the opportunity to review a piece by one of our namesake writers, Joan Didion, but today we are going to dive into her newly published collection, Let Me Tell You What I Mean, which came out earlier this year in 2021, also making it the most contemporary work that we'll have reviewed on the show thus far. As always, all of my sources are linked at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode. This episode was also generously funded by our patrons. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. Joan Didion. The more I hear about her, the more I read from her, the more she stands out in my mind and also in my understanding as a seminal cultural figure with a position in society that not many people, let alone writers, are able to hold. I can sing as many praises as I would like about Didion the figure as she emerges from her fictional and autobiographical works, but the main message that I hope to communicate in this episode is that there's no topping reading Didion yourself. Let Me Tell You What I Mean is an essay collection featuring 12 shorts which were originally published between 1968 and 2000. The collection is weighted towards the earlier works of Didion's, though the few later pieces, Last Words, A Meditation on Hemingway, and Everywoman.com, An Uncovering of Womanhood, and Martha Stewart among them, stand out to me as some of my personal favorite works by the author. Indeed, this collection has turned out to be my favorite collection of hers, even above the White Album. Shocking, I know, because at the time I read it, it took a position in my life that none of the other collections were able to take. I read it at the exact right time. So often, and the more I read, the more intensely I feel this truth. The books that stay with us stay with us not all because of the book itself or the way it's written, but because of the time period in which you read that book. With this collection in particular, it's stunning by itself, and there are pieces, especially Last Words and Telling Stories, which are both pieces that I revisited in my reading of the collection, are just impeccable. But what made the work for me was that I read it during a time at which I myself was exploring the craft of writing as a means of self-realization. And the way that Didion articulates her own strengths and fears about the craft sat with me longer than her other works ever had. The Didion Gaze Hilton Alls, the forward writer of this collection, names what they call the Didion Gaze. Anyone who has been with the show for any amount of time knows that I love reading forwards. A good foreword serves to position the reader in time and space before they commence reading that work, especially noting what role the work plays in the broader literary, historical, political, and or socio-cultural frameworks. I always find it fascinating, for example, to read the forewords of older literature, 
works by Charles Dickens or the Bronte sisters come to mind, to see how these different perspectives, how many dozens of years later the foreword is written in, place the work in time and in space. A good foreword, therefore, has much to offer with regard to the kinds of thoughts, questions, and background that you come into the work with, and that can be an extraordinarily powerful tool if leveraged and written well as this foreword is. There is so much that we could discuss with regard to this foreword in itself, and it makes an abundance of great parallels and references to different shorts in the collection, all while paying tribute to Didion's work at these various stages of her career. The one idea that I want to focus on for the scope of this episode, however, is the idea of the Didion case, best represented from page XXVIII of the text i.e. within the foreword. I read from that page. Quote, Didion in high school, hanging out with guys who didn't bother with college. Didion observing Frank at the piano or watching John Wayne on screen as a kid, selling sexuality. All of this is fascinating in part because it's rare. As a woman looking at men and not looking away, Joan Didion reversed the standard male-female deal while developing the Didian gaze." I love this summation of Didian's work in the sense that it's true. Didian really does have this sort of unique gaze that she is able to write into her novels. And Didian has this very frank prose that I admire so much. And I think that that idea of the Didion gaze matches her prose so spectacularly uh, with this almost Hemingway-like, almost masculine sense of writing that I often get from her, at least in my own reading of her. Um, The Didion gaze is an idea that really fits into a lot of my conception and my understanding of her work and the way that she writes. Not only what she's writing about in terms of not having any subject really off the table for a lot of her short uh, pieces when she was a journalist and not even for her longer form works as well. I think of El Salvador or democracy, political fictions, All of these works are subject matter that Didion doesn't shy away from, as I feel a lot of other writers would. And it fits, again, this idea of the Didion gaze so well. I think it also invites the personal side of Didion's writing, which is cool because even her personal fiction, or her political fiction rather, purposefully doesn't maintain objectivity in the way that a lot of journalism tries to, or at least tries to showcase this like false sense of objectivity. Uh, There really isn't that sense of objectivity in Didion's writing and this personal side is so well articulated by this Didion gaze, this unique feature of her writing where, I love that line, she looks at men and doesn't look away. And of course, the other reason why I love this summation or this characteristic that the forward writer is pointing out in Didion's writing is because it's an inversion of a classic motif in literature 
We talked about this on the one of the Midnight Sun episodes from last summer, where we asked what is going on with the male gaze in this novel, and how does Stephanie Meyer avoid that, or transcend that in some ways, or become mired in the idea of the male gaze. And the male gaze, especially in a lot of the thematic material of Didion's from, for example, the early 60s, is rampant in a lot of the films that she's watching. And I remember a, um, fil- a, a short story in the White Album about the bikers' films in the 60s. <laughs> and it's that, it's sticking with that classic motif in literature and just altering it slightly to fit Didion's writing, which I think is such a brilliant idea. So there's tons of other, like I said, tons of other stuff that we could look at in this forward, but I thought we would take a brief glance at the Didion gaze to give you a sense of what kinds of aspects, even small ones as this one is, go into a great forward. And there are aspects like Freudian psychoanalysis that this author draws from and looking, I think this is so hard and something that this forward does really well, looking at the entire scope of Didion's career because this short story collection covers quite a bit of ground in Didion's career and so being able to position oneself throughout the collection by walking through all these short stories as the forward writer does and a I think a very unique but also a very palatable way just suits the collection so well and when I got done with the foreword I remember being so well positioned to start this collection and it was that much more enjoyable because I had this firm grounding I had questions and ideas about the text before having read a lot of these short pieces Uh, And that's exactly, like I said, what an amazing foreword does for us. Why I write and telling stories. These two short pieces, Why I Write and Telling Stories, appear one right after the other in the collection. I have read Telling Stories elsewhere, but this second read-through in the context of Why I Write, which is a speech of Didion's that reflects on the craft of writing itself, but also on her discovery of herself as a writer, allowed me to approach telling stories from a completely new viewpoint. So much of writing is reflection, and what interests me about Didion's reflections on her own career through these two pieces is the way in which she reflects on them. Underscoring her time at Berkeley is the beginning of her development as a writer, and then touching on other influential pillars of her life, such as her job writing at Vogue, to understand how these facets of her life influenced her writing. My only recommendation to you is to read the collection yourself, but I will include another quote from pages 60 to 61. This is after she has gotten a B in her 106A English class at Berkeley, which is a fiction writing class, and she is commenting on that experience after completing the class. Page 60, quote, When I say I wrote no more stories for exactly 10 years, I do not mean that I wrote nothing at all. In fact, I wrote constantly. I wrote once I left Berkeley for a living. 
I went to New York and I wrote merchandising copy for Vogue and I wrote promotion copy for Vogue. The distinction between the two was definite but recondit. And to try to explain it would be like giving the AFL-CIO definition of two apparently similar jobs on the line at the Ford Assembly Plant in Pico Rivera, California. And after a while, I wrote editorial copy for Vogue. A sample of the last. Opposite, above. All through the house, color, verve, improvised treasures, and happy but anomalous coexistence. Here, a Frank Stella, an Art Nouveau stained glass panel, a Roy Lichtenstein. Not show. A table covered with frankly brilliant oilcloth. A Mexican find at 15 cents a yard. Unquote. Last words. What struck me again and again throughout this piece, Last Words, is how linguistic Didion's analysis of Hemingway is. It's not purely linguistic, of course, in the sense that she doesn't draw up a syntax tree or do anything overtly mechanical with the Hemingway passages she works with, but she does dissect his syntax in a way only someone familiar with the craft of writing can dissect syntax, and yes, that includes linguists, which is by pining over elements like syllabic structure and count and word choice and comma use in the way that Didion does in this piece. I love this kind of analysis from Didion for two reasons. One, it touches on both the physical and the metaphysical, that is, it talks about some explanatory formal elements, but also leaves room for the feeling one gets when reading the passage, which I think in Hemingway's writing, for example, is indispensable. It leaves room for some of the amazing meta-discourse that can happen about Hemingway's writing in this particular sense. Two, it takes the broader context of who and what was behind the words into account by detailing Hemingway's history, but even this element in a way that is distinctly Didion-esque. I read from page 103 of the collection. Quote, the didactic momentum of the biography was such that we sometimes forgot that this was a writer who had in his time made the English language new, changed the rhythms of the way both his own and the next few generations would speak and write and think. The very grammar of a Hemingway sentence dictated or was dictated by a certain kind of looking at the world, a way of looking but not joining, a way of moving through but not attaching, a kind of romantic individualism distinctly adapted to its time and source. Unquote. So I found this passage actually quite similar to one of the opening passages in the White Album from page one, which I ended up going through and memorizing, so I'll recite the last bit of that for you. And this is from page one of the White Album, quote, We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience, unquote. These are both sentences, or passages rather, that I've had to sit with for quite a long time <laughs> just to get over the amazing word choice and the structure of them and how they 
narrow down through vagaries uh, these different ideas that Didion's trying to communicate. And it's the precision of her imprecision that's beautiful. She oscillates between, for example, tenses and descriptions, reaching from either side of the continuum here to get at her meaning eventually. Take a look at this part of this passage from page 103. The very grammar of a Hemingway sentence dictated or was dictated by a certain way of looking at the world. Even this part, dictated or was dictated by, she doesn't always know if the chicken or the egg comes first in that sense. Is the Hemingway sentence doing the work of representing the world in a certain way, sort of coming from Hemingway in that sense and being the directive itself, or is it being shaped in itself by the world, by the images that Hemingway is trying to understand or write or create? When we look later in that sentence, a way of looking but not joining, a way of moving through but not attaching, a kind of romantic individualism distinctly adapted to its time and source. What she's doing is using almost category-like reference, or terms rather, and she is slowly honing them down, and it's the amalgamation of all of these precise words and these imprecise words that creates the image that she's looking for. Looking but not joining. So we need the parts of looking, in other words, that don't include joining. A way of moving through but not attaching. So we need all of the parts of moving through without attaching and don't forget to put looking but not joining within that. And it goes on and on. And so the way that she's specifying the exact thing that she's referring to, we'd call that a referent in linguistics, <laughs> is fascinating. It's sort of this building block, or I think of it sort of as a Christmas tree, like a diagonal kind of method of oscillating back and forth between precise and imprecise, vague, and very specific. Conclusion. Overall, I found this book to be conclusive, not only of Didion's own persistent skill in the craft of writing, but in her stance that writing is worth it as a practice, as an art, as an evocation. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.